I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome history friends, patrons all, to 1956 episode 1.5. Last time, Nikita Khrushchev had delivered his speech to a closed section of the 20th Party Congress over the evening to early morning of 24th to 25th of February. Without apparently thinking much of the consequences, Khrushchev had several motives for denouncing Stalin and the cult of personality which he had spawned. In this episode, we delve into some of the consequences which emerged from his speech. Last time we saw how the reactions of some citizens, and of Georgians in particular, wasn't exactly what Khrushchev had wanted to see, but over the summer of 1956, discontent and confusion over what the speech actually meant reigned supreme. These were the first signs something was looming on a scale Moscow had never faced before. The iron grip of the Soviet Union on its reluctant eastern satellites was not yet being called into question, but grumbles and rumbles were rising and these were soon to escalate into a crisis far beyond anything which the first secretary could have imagined. Let's take a look then, as we resume 1956. Comrade Stalin, the genius of our party, rallied the peoples of our country and led them to the triumph of socialism. Stalin stood at the cradle of each Soviet republic, protected it and paternally helped it to grow and flourish. This is why all the peoples of our country, with extraordinary warmth and filial love, call the great leader Stalin their dear father and genius teacher. Today the peoples of the great Soviet Union and all advanced progressive mankind wholeheartedly greet our dear comrade Stalin, inspirer of the indissoluble friendship of peoples. Glory to our dear father, the genius leading the party, the Soviet people and the working people of the whole world, comrade Stalin. In such a way did Nikita Khrushchev heap praise upon Joseph Stalin upon the occasion of the latter's 70th birthday in December 1949. At this point in the 20th century, the purges were at their height, and Stalin's terrors had been allowed to rampage through all sense of decency and personal security in the sprawling socialist empire. Khrushchev had evidently played no small or insignificant role in the creation of this nightmare, in particular in the region where he had responsibility, the Ukraine. As one historian put it, Khrushchev cannot assume the role of Stalin's accuser with clean hands. 
This was because, the historian continued, Like every prominent political figure in the Soviet Union, he survived the purges of the Stalin era only by obsequious sycophancy and by zealously carrying out any purging assignments which the dictator entrusted. Khrushchev, indeed, had been a member of the so-called Purge Troika, tasked with liquidating enemies of the people among the Ukrainian population. Khrushchev was aided in this task by both the NKVD and Molotov, and they proved highly effective, if such a word could even be used in these circumstances. Most members of the Ukrainian cabinet, of the Ukrainian Supreme Soviet, and of the Ukrainian Central Committee were summarily executed. According to conservative estimates, 60% of the Ukrainian Communist Party apparatus was liquidated, not to speak of thousands of ordinary party members and their accomplices, the class-hostile elements among non-party people. Khrushchev knew full well that he had played an active role in setting up the Stalinist system. He had helped to establish it, and he had survived only by obeying the whims of the all-powerful Stalin. Now, acquiring these same reins of power from his rivals, could he really afford to discredit the Stalinist system, since it not only served as the foundations of the Soviet Union by 1956, but it also served as the blueprint for the stately model which Khrushchev intended to follow. The veneer of collective leadership was as sincere as Lenin's similar claims in the early 1920s. In reality, this collective was merely a group of individuals who owed their allegiance and careers to Khrushchev and who operated in his name with a lesser threat to their lives now than during the previous regime. The death of Stalin in March 1953 hadn't led to an immediate thaw, but there was a sense in the months before the secret speech, as we have seen in episodes past, that things were not as rigid or as strict as they had once been. One student of Moscow's university remembered that From 1951 to 54, practically all of us showed to the world a completely straight communist face. You can find any critical views of the regime to your closest friends, and even then unpleasant things sometimes happened. The danger of arrest and deportation was immediate. I was, frankly, very surprised to learn in 1955 and 1956, after the thaw began, that there were a great number of other small circles of friends, thinking in much the same way, who had been cut off from each other. Then in the winter of 55, all of a sudden people started to talk about things that they would never have mentioned previously, and gradually there was more talk about politics, especially after the 20th Party Congress in 1956, when Khrushchev made his famous denunciation of Stalin. Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin was like a final break with this enforced silence. People were allowed to talk about issues which they had never before addressed, and after the secret speech, oh boy, did this process accelerate. It seems odd that Khrushchev did not anticipate the logical conclusions of such a relaxation, but we saw in previous episodes that the first secretary probably believed that he could control the fallout. Much like Gorbachev's accidental destruction of the USSR, Khrushchev never imagined that the citizens of the Soviet Union would go as far as they did. Instead, he expected that the people would be so grateful for this new respite that their loyalties and dedication to bettering the socialist system would only increase. Khrushchev believed that by applying some controlled, limited reforms in the midst of the break with Stalin, the Soviet Union would be cleansed of wrongdoing, and its systems would be allowed to continue, empowered with a greater and more sincere sense of respect from the public. In this naive hope, Khrushchev had been proved incorrect almost immediately. 
It was perhaps to be expected that Georgia would not appreciate the denunciation of its favourite son. The intensity of the protests in Georgia notwithstanding, by the end of March 1956 at least, Georgia was pacified and Georgians were suitably punished by their exclusion from the party's apparatus in Moscow, where under Stalin's lead many had risen to prominence. Even with this containment of the bug of reaction though, Khrushchev and his circle were still unnerved. It wasn't merely the appearance of violence in Georgia, but the passions and zeal of those who took part in its battles that caused this unease. Just as it had been important to distinguish between the regime of Stalin and this new collective leadership under Khrushchev, it now became necessary to distinguish between appropriate and inappropriate responses in the Soviet Union to what the first secretary had said in his secret speech. Indeed, this ability to distinguish what was permissible and forbidden to discuss was a very important aspect of Soviet life, and the findings or perspectives of the various think tanks established to decide on these sensitive questions had, unsurprisingly, a profound impact upon the lives of the citizens living in the Soviet writ. The historian Robert Hornsby, in his contribution to the book Khrushchev in the Kremlin, Policy and Government in the Soviet Union, made some useful and concise observations on what was acceptable to discuss in this highly controlled debating environment. An important point made by Hornsby was on the issue of political dissent, the umbrella term under which a wide range of no-go topics dwelt. Hornsby said in regards to political dissent that, Essentially, this meant acts of dissent that can broadly be defined as protest and criticism involving language and behaviours that either reflected or implied discontent at the policies, representatives and goals of the Soviet regime. Political dissent involved a range of activities such as preparing and distributing anti-Soviet leaflets, calling for strikes and uprisings, publicly criticising leaders of the party, or forming underground political groups. In short then, Zach, people weren't allowed to talk about anything, really, were they? Well, actually, this wasn't quite true. There was a limited degree of tolerance for the debating of certain select issues, as Hornsby continues in his explanation. There were still some areas and ways in which it was possible to show disapproval legitimately. What the authorities did consider to be within the boundaries of acceptable criticism essentially consisted of business-like debate through the correct channels on proposed policies and complaints on specific abuses and shortcomings by individuals at lower levels of the political spectrum. Policies already in force and political and social order were the most explicitly forbidden themes of criticism. However, Hornsby notes that the limits on acceptable debate did not stop there. One of the most sensitive issues swirling around the public sphere was of course the subject of the West. Overt support demonstrated by a Soviet citizen towards the West was always to be greeted with hostility and suspicion. Anything short of praise for Moscow and criticism for Washington could never be accompanied by anything but a swift reprisal, especially if the lies were to be maintained and the facade of capitalist inferiority upheld. Hornsby wrote that, Since the Soviet authorities saw citizens' attitudes towards the West as a key indicator of their political loyalty to the Soviet regime, it naturally followed that any kind of dissenting behaviour involving the West, such as negative comparisons between Soviet and US living standards, or attempts to communicate with Western organisations, instantly made any perceived transgression more grave. The sphere of acceptable criticism had in fact expanded very little since the Stalin years. The main difference lay in the manner of response that the authorities deemed appropriate. By effectively equating the activities of its critics with treason, the regime consistently overestimated the threat posed by dissent in general, 
and failed to address the real causes of discontent. In the espionage-filled world of the 1950s, it shouldn't be too surprising to us to denote the equation of sympathy with the West with foreign subversion. One needs only to take a gander at the Red Scare era of American politics in the early 1950s to see that across the Atlantic, statesmen were also under a great deal of pressure to not make views of a controversial nature public. Labelling any public displays of sympathy, any slackening enthusiasm for communism, or any turmoil at home as foreign-supported, traitorist, or capitalist was immensely helpful for Soviet lawmakers and, of course, policemen alike. We will see these rhetorical weapons come into force once the great revolts in Poland and Hungary begin, but considering this bank of experience when dealing with such troubling elements, we may find it surprising that Khrushchev in the atmosphere of the secret speech didn't make great efforts either before or after to prepare for what might emerge in this newly thawed era of Soviet public debate. If he and his peers were able to present their errors to the Soviet sphere, then why were the inhabitants of the same sphere not permitted to discuss their implications in too much detail? Furthermore, what was to be done with those that interpreted the core message of what Khrushchev had said in a far more reactionary manner than the First Secretary had intended? Robert Hornsby concluded with a reference to Peter Pospolov, who we met in the last episode and who provided Khrushchev with so much detailed information on the full extent of the Stalinist purges, that Surprisingly, no concrete plans were established before or immediately after the secret speech in regard to how to police critical responses to Khrushchev's report. In all likelihood, this lack of pre-planning was a result of the short timescale that existed between the decision for Khrushchev to deliver Peter Pospolov's report on Stalin and the actual event taking place. Nonetheless, it also demonstrated one of the central characteristics of policy against dissent in the early Khrushchev years. That is, the authorities were rarely proactive in seeking to forestall outputs of criticism and protest, and were therefore forced to respond to them afterwards. The decision by the Central Committee to watch like a hawk all lists of comments and questions which were sent back to its HQ following its party's official presentation of the speech and the reaction to it across the Soviet lands was typical of the state's determination to monitor all levels of discourse. As we saw in the last episode, in our examination of the experience of Anna Pankratova, the loyal party history teacher, Moscow knew full well that its representatives had been left utterly alone to answer any difficult questions about what Khrushchev had said. The vague and varied manner in which the speech was disseminated and presented to the state citizens says as much about the disorganised nature of Khrushchev's plans as it does about the party's inability to cope with a reaction on the scale that developed over spring 1956. It was in Moscow's Thermal Technical Laboratory, a research institution under the Soviet Academy of Sciences, that one debate in particular caught the attentions of the Soviet authorities and led to the first of many rebukes by the Soviet state media towards those who had taken Khrushchev's ball and run with it. It is worth considering those individuals who didn't pause to consider the inner struggles of the Communist Party and who thought not of Khrushchev's motivations, but of the implications for their daily lives. One such individual was Yuri Orlov, who in 1956 was working at the Thermal Technical Laboratory as a technician. In time, Orlov was to become one of the most prominent dissidents in the Soviet Union, as he campaigned tirelessly both for human rights and for freedom of conscience in the name of scientific pursuits for Soviet scientists. He would play a leading role in helping to found Amnesty International's Soviet branch, 
and he was arrested after several years of campaigning in 1977, spending nine years in Soviet prisons before emigrating to the United States, where, at the time you're listening to this in March 2018, he remains alive and an alumni of Cornell University at the ripe age of 93. Ordov was one of just many of the thousands of would-be dissidents who was inspired by the contents of the secret speech to push for more. His 1991 book, Dangerous Thoughts, was a highly personal and intensive tale of one man's search to find meaning in the socialist utopia which the Soviets had created, even while that same utopia had proved so ruinous to many people's lives. On Friday, the 23rd of March, 1956, it was Orlov and two other colleagues who spent the afternoon debating the contents of the secret speech and its implications in the hall of the laboratory building in Moscow. According to the stenographic record of the meeting, the afternoon was opened normally enough, with the Institute's political department head noting how The Congress demonstrated the unbreakable unity of the party's ranks, the convergence of the party around the Leninist Central Committee, and its indestructible bond with the masses. Once one of Orlov's colleagues began to speak, though, the meeting descended into a scene which was anything but normal. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Orlov's colleague was a man named Robert Avalov, and he reasoned that, far from the cult of personality being to blame for the country's woes, the true problem facing the Soviet state was a concentration of power in the hands of too few individuals. The solution, Avalov believed, was to arm the people, who would then be equipped to remove power from those that abused it. It was Orlov, then, who was tasked with following this incendiary idea, but he proved just as critical of Soviet policy as his colleague had been. Unwilling to accept the usually parroted lies, Orlov remembered what he had seen and experienced since the end of the Second World War. He didn't question the goals of socialism, but he criticised the clear characteristics of dictatorship in the Soviet Union, where there was meant to be democracy of the people. The proletariat, Orlov said, had warped 
Lenin's socialist goal into this new and unequal political situation, where personal power and the protection of it mattered more than genuine progress. We need total democratization in our lives, Orlov said. We'll have socialism only when one can live confidently without looking over one's shoulder. Tell us, are they repressing people nowadays for speaking out or not? Orlov knew that, of course, they, the secret police, were just as active as ever in suppressing any signs of discontent, especially when it went outside the realm of acceptable debate, as we saw earlier. Vadim Nesterov followed the example of his peers, but he focused his attentions on the horrors of the purges, and he urged those present to consider how it had been possible that Stalin could have liquidated over 70% of the original cadre of Bolsheviks. The media, Nesterov said, had played a leading role in warping the truth. Nesterov called for the removing of censorship and an end to the jamming of news agencies like the BBC. Nesterov posed the very reasonable question that if the Soviet leadership was so sure of the sanctity of its socialist message, why had they prevented any alternative messages from entering into the Soviet Union? Why not unjam these broadcasts, make foreign media accessible to the Soviet people, and let these people decide for themselves what was truth? Nesterov was followed by a few more speakers before the meeting broke up in the evening. Yuri Orlov and his peers then went home that evening full of enthusiasm and ideas over how to better the Soviet life. In conversations with his wife, Orlov contemplated the removal of the Soviet bureaucracy as the people took control and the establishment of a second political party in the Soviet Union to keep democratic debate alive. Orlov's most revolutionary ideas had been saved for his family, but what he had said in public had been enough to spook the head of the Institute's political department. The criticism and questioning of the wisdom of the leadership was dangerous, and if it wasn't nipped in the bud, those further up the chain would surely suffer. Out of fear more than anything else, then, the head of the directorate for the joyfully named Ministry of Medium Machine Building was invited to attend a new rake of debates that resumed on Monday the 26th of March. Orlov and his peers arrived to work that morning full of developing ideas about how to advance the progress initiated by Khrushchev, but they never got a chance to speak. Orlov's superiors took to the floor in the afternoon debate before him and denounced the criticisms of he and his peers of the Soviet leadership. His superiors warned that any violations of legality which had occurred under Stalin did not delegitimize the democratic credentials of the current Soviet system. Such claims were as empty as they were insulting to the intelligence of those very many intelligent physicists and technicians who had gathered to hear more debates. Under the dour gaze of one of the Soviet Union's senior officials, that head of the directorate for the Ministry of Medium Machine Building, Orlov's superiors faced catcalls and abuse when they claimed that Orlov and company had insulted the 8 million members of the Soviet Union's Communist Party. The floor then suddenly was buzzing with the spectacle of several technicians ignoring the main man on the podium and speaking out of turn to make some important points. The result was one of the most striking but also impromptu displays of anti-Soviet behaviour seen in some time. One noted that he would know for certain that the cult of personality was over when he heard a real discussion in the Supreme Soviet. Another noted soberly, quoting from Khrushchev's speech, that Lenin had not punished those who had adopted mistaken points of view. It was up to the older generation of the party to educate the younger members. Orlov may have been mistaken, one senior research assistant noted, but he had spoken from the heart and this had to be respected. Others praised the sincerity of Orlov and his rebellious friends, 
sincerity had acquired a new importance in the post-Stalin years. The cult was debated, as was the media's control over the minds of the people. These intelligent scientists knew in their heart of hearts, even if they believed in socialism as a governing doctrine, that the current political climate was awash with contradictions. One individual questioned Khrushchev's dodging of any responsibility for what had occurred during the purges, and as Khrushchev's record in the Ukraine and elsewhere attests, they were correct to do so. When a vote was taken on what to do with Orlov and company, a full one-third of the institute refused to totally condemn his words. This was unacceptable, and the thermal technical laboratory would be completely reorganised in the weeks to come, while Orlov, Vadim Nesterov and Robert Avalov would all be removed from their positions and forbidden from finding work in Moscow. The lab's director rang up Khrushchev and told the rebels that I telephoned Khrushchev on your behalf, but he has said he was not the only member of the Presidium. Other members demanded your arrest. He told me they should be glad they got off with dismissals. The message was clear. Orlov had been correct in that people would still be punished for speaking out against the regime. The major difference was that the punishment metered out would be less severe than they had been under Stalin. Orlov and his friends were on the cusp of glittering, distinguished careers in Soviet scientific and human rights pursuits. Despite the official criticism from on high, the Soviet Union's liberal intelligentsia viewed them as living martyrs and ensured that they were not totally shunned, as the ruling had intended. If the Soviet leadership were not used to such an underwhelming conclusion to their usual tactics, then they continued as normal to follow the expected course, further condemnation in the media. The party's organ, Pravda, untrue to its name as ever, saw fit to spout its version of the truth yet again. In an article entitled, The Communist Party Has Triumphed and Will Triumph Through Loyalty to Leninism, the accomplishments of the 20th Party Congress were once again given praise. About halfway through this editorial in Pravda, though, the tone changed, asserting that the party welcomed principled and brave criticism offered up in the spirit of Bolshevik party nost, translated as party-mindedness. It was warned that certain rotten elements were taking advantage of the situation offered by Khrushchev's speech to air all sorts of slanderous fabrications and anti-party assertions. It was then that Orlov and company's actions at the Thermal Technical Laboratory were presented to the readership, all of which were condemned as foreign reactionary propaganda. Pravda studiously avoided examining what Orlov etc. had said, dismissing their reasonable gripes as foreign-inspired slander, and focused more on the failure of senior party members to correct what the younger speakers had said. It was up to these party members to correct the errors of their fellow countrymen, and it was a worrying sign that those present had been so reluctant to do so. Note the tone and presentation of these events, guys. We saw earlier how extensive the focus on foreign slander and subversion was in the media, and how the demonization of the West remained a fundamental aspect of the Soviet message. In many ways, the criticism of the capitalist West was as important to Moscow as the parroting of the Soviet socialist message, largely because the one depended on the other. Any failures or criticisms of the latter could be blamed on the former, and much like modern-day North Korea, the state could present this cover-up in any manner that it wished, with convincing results to those citizens that simply wished to get by and not stir up a fuss. The importance of leaving foreign caricatures in the state's hands is thus abundantly clear. If the party allowed the people to make up their own minds about the West, 
then the entire socialist edifice and perhaps even the foundations of the communist state itself would collapse. Of course, this was the central problem facing the likes of Khrushchev. How could one criticise and discredit the actions of Stalin without also discrediting the man's legacy? Without Stalin, there would surely be no massive state control over the media. The cult of Stalin may have come under fire, but its tenets had been merely transplanted to the state. Where before Stalin was the wise, benevolent and faultless leader, now the collective leadership, the party or Leninism, assumed this cult. On the surface, Khrushchev claimed to be removing the shackles of the cult, when in reality, he simply fastened these shackles to new ideological posts. There was a reason why more citizens were arrested during Khrushchev's tenure as first secretary than any of those of his successors. Even with the presence of the Thaw, Khrushchev believed his position insecure, and he was immensely sensitive to any opportunistic critics taking advantage of the absence of Stalin to bring down what that man had built. He could decry the means, but Khrushchev depended utterly on the fruits of Stalin's bloody labours. Every successive Soviet leader since essentially lived in the house which Stalin had built, and their hands were no cleaner than that overworked coal miner of whom more and more was to be demanded. So in this episode, we've given you a good bit of background detail into how the dissenting voices were viewed and dealt with following the secret speech. In the next episode, though, our focus moves out of the Soviet Union and into more vulnerable, sensitive regions. Our first stop on this secret speech tour will be that hotbed of controversy and despair, Poland. I hope you'll join me for that, but until then, this has been 1956, the eventful year. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.